lot of people talk about the pursuit of happiness, but I think in in many ways it's better to talk about the happiness of pursuit and seeing yeah. happiness as a byproduct of something else, a meaningful life, for instance, or uh, a greater purpose. Hi, my name is Dr. Rongan Chatterjee, medical doctor, author of The Four Pillar Plan and television presenter. I believe that all of us have the ability to feel better than we currently do, but getting healthy has become far too complicated. With this podcast, I aim to simplify it. I'm going to be having conversations with some of the most interesting and exciting people both within as well as outside the health space to hopefully inspire you as well as empower you with simple tips that you can put into practice immediately to transform the way that you feel. I believe that when we are healthier, we are happier because when we feel better, we live more. Hello and welcome to another episode of my Feel Better, Live More podcast. My name is Rongan Chastji and I am your host. Today's conversation is all about happiness. What it is, is it a realistic goal and how do we get more of it? My guest today is the one and only Mike Viking. Mike has written multiple best-selling books on the topic, including The Little Book of Hugger. Mike understands happiness better than anyone. He is the founder and the CEO of the world's only Happiness Research Institute and has traveled the globe interviewing the world's happiest people to discover the key components of happiness. Now, before we get on to today's conversation, I have just a couple of things to let you know about. Firstly, I'm going to be releasing some live dates very soon where you can see me speak in person. And I've also got some really exciting news about the podcast to share with you. Now, I'm going to be releasing all of this information to subscribers of my free weekly email newsletter. You can sign up for free at drchastity.com forward slash subscription, where you will also receive a free six-part video series from myself on how to get more energy. So if this is of interest to you, please do check it out at drchastity.com forward slash subscription. Secondly, just a quick note to let you know about my ongoing partnership with Athletic Greens, who are the sponsors of today's show. In order to support the time and expense it takes to put these podcasts out, I've taken on a sponsor whose vision is very well aligned with my own to help people feel better so that they can get more out of life. Now, as you well know, I believe that the right nutrition is an essential ingredient to having a healthy and happy life. There is no question that I prefer people to get their nutrition from eating food, but these days for some of us that can be a little bit challenging. You might be busy, on the go, rushing around, and even with the best intentions, on some days it can be a little bit tricky to cook a wholesome, nutritious meal. If you feel that this applies to you and you want to take something each morning as an insurance policy to make sure that you are meeting your nutritional needs, I can highly recommend Athletic Greens. It is a super tasty whole food greens powder that you can take each morning. And unlike most green supplements that I've tried in the past, it tastes fantastic. It's actually so much more than just a green supplement because it contains vitamins, minerals, prebiotics, digestive enzymes, and adaptogens. Many of you have already now tried the products and let me know that your energy has improved significantly. I personally love the company Ethos, and I have to say that it is one of the most nutrient-dense whole food supplements that I have come across. For listeners of this podcast, if you go to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more, 
you'll be able to access a special offer where you get a free travel pack box containing 20 servings of Athletic Greens, which is worth around £70 with your first order. So do go and check it out at athleticgreens.com forward slash live more. Now, on to today's conversation. So I'm actually sitting in the seventh floor of Penguin in London uh, with another author who is also published by Penguin Life. It is Mr. Mike Viking. Mike, welcome to my podcast. Thank you very much. Mike, it's hard to know where to start, really. But I think the best place is to talk about your job title. You are, I believe, the CEO of the Happiness Research Institute in Copenhagen. Right. That's correct. <laughs> well, I, I think that sounds like the best job title in the world. So why don't you tell me more? Yeah, so actually, I think it's the second best job title in the world. I think the best job title in the world goes to Uhud Al-Rumi. Uh, she's the Minister of State for Happiness in the United Emirate, uh, Arab Emirates. So she and I, we battle a little over who has the coolest job title, and I think she wins. But well, I'm going to give it to you, actually. <laughs> I'm going to give it to you. <laughs> Thanks. So, so the Happiness Research Institute, we are a uh, think tank uh, based in Copenhagen that basically tries to solve three questions. So we try first to understand how we can measure the good life or happiness. Secondly, why some people are happier than others. And thirdly, we try to explore how we can improve quality of life for people. So, so those are the three questions we try to shed some light on with studies and experiments uh, within happiness and well-being. So when did this institute come about? I mean, I'm really interested in, have we as human beings been happier in the past than we are today? And is there, is there a real need in the 21st century to be studying happiness? So there's a lot of questions <laughs> in that one. So. Yeah, sorry. I called it one question, but it's, it's quite a lot. So, so it came about, I started the institute back in 2013, so I was working for another think tank in Copenhagen on uh, sustainability, but noticed how much was happening globally with happiness research and happiness and politics. Um, in 2012, you had the United Nations, they passed uh, the UN happiness resolution. So asking all the countries of the world to focus more on, on happiness and see what they can do to improve quality of life. You had different governments starting to measure well-being as a new measure of progress. Uh, David Cameron started it here in the, in the UK also around the same time. And I thought there's a lot happening with trying to understand how we can create good conditions for good lives. There's a lot happening with happiness rankings. The World Happiness Report came out. And Denmark was at the top of that list. And I thought there really should be somebody in Denmark trying to explore this and create a center of knowledge around this field uh, in Denmark. And then I thought maybe I should do that. Yeah. Wow. So I started out uh, now six years ago with uh, what I thought was a good idea and a bad laptop. Uh, <laughs> and now we're a small company of eight people um, exploring these, these questions. Um, but the, the other dimension of your question, have we been happier or less happy than, than we are now? It depends where you look. Um, which country uh, you look. If you take um, a country like the US, um, that has obviously increased their GDP levels, their wealth levels over the past decades, but they have also seen a large drop in happiness. Actually, um, in the last World Happiness Report, they dropped four places. Wow. Uh, but we also see other places uh, in the world uh, increasing their happiness levels. Uh, Greece have increased uh, since the, the, the financial crisis and, and other countries around the world as well. So it depends where we look. 
Yeah, I mean, I can see that. And as you, as you were sort of describing that, I, I thought back to this uh, film called Happy that I've seen uh, maybe a, a few years back. I don't know if you've seen it at all. Is it the guy that travels around the world? Uh, he's a happiness researcher. Yeah, there's a guy. The, the opening shot is uh, this guy of a rickshaw uh, puller in Calcutta in India. And they start off by showing how he lives in, you know, in a slum. He's, you know, barely got uh, a roof over his head, but he lives with his wife and his two kids. And he goes off in the morning to pull rickshaws all day. And um, this is the opening of the film. And then he, you know, he comes back saying often, you know, he gets wet in the monsoons, but he, he doesn't mind because he's going to get dry very soon afterwards. Uh, often his customers are abusive to him. But he does what he has to do. And he says, when he gets home at the end of the day, he says, I'm the happiest man in the world. His two kids greet him. Mm. They give him a hug. He says, we've got enough to eat. Um, you know, yeah, sure, the rain gets into our house sometimes. But uh, the, the film then delivers this amazing statistic saying that Manoj Singh, who, who is this chap, is as happy as the average American. Mm. And I think they use that to demonstrate the concept that once you have you know, a certain level of income, then more money does not equate to happiness. That's that's one of the messages I remember from the film. I don't know if you would agree with any of that. And I guess that then leads to the, the question, does money buy you happiness? <laughs> I'm going to say no, but money matters for happiness. But I think what you can buy with money is a, an insurance against unhappiness from some angles. Okay. Obviously, if you are without money, that's a cause of stress and worry and anxiety. Um, but as you correctly put it, once we reach a certain threshold for income, additional 100 pounds per month is not going to impact how we feel. So we see with, with money, as with everything else, the more we have of something, the less pleasure we get from an additional unit of it. First piece of cake, great. Piece number five, not so good. Same with wine, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think, well, a lot of people would say that it is the same. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, I guess it depends who you ask. Right. Um, but, but I think there's something nice about that concept that a little bit of something is good, but too much can, can start to become problematic. Right. And I think what I remember, I don't remember the exact figure from the film. I think the science that they showed, uh, and again, this may be different science mm. than what, mm. what, what your institute has conducted, was sort of demonstrating that once you've hit that, yeah, your basic needs are taken care of. More money did not equate to more happiness. Right. Yes. So, I, I think that the, the number I've seen for you for the US is seventy five thousand okay. dollars per year. But uh, there's there's several things to say about this. Um, one thing is that yes, we care about the absolute income. So, how much are we able to consume, or what can we consume with the money we have? But we can also see there is a dimension called relative income. So we are also interested in how much money do we make compared to everybody else. Yeah. So I can't remember who said it, but I think it's, it's put quite truthfully in, in terms of what we see in happiness research that a happy man is a man that makes 100 pounds more than his wife's sister's husband. Because we care about our position in the social hierarchy. Yeah. So you know, if you own... 
three rickshaws instead of one, then you are a wealthy man on the block. Uh, but if you're driving a Toyota and your neighbor is driving Ferraris and Porsches, then that put, it puts it into perspective. Yeah, that's fascinating. I, I always think then on, a, on an evolutionary level how maybe that has in some way served us in the past to be, you know, king of the hill, as it were, um, or maybe striving for that yet... Is that something in today's world where, you know, frankly, I guess social media would, would play a role here in terms of you can you can always see on social media that someone is doing something better than you or right. more exciting than what you perceive your life to be. So does that whole desire to, you know, have have a relative level of a success, you know, ha- have a high degree of success relative to your peer group? I guess that in some ways can can be hugely problematic in today's world. Yeah, that that's what we see also in the data that social media is this constant bombardment of great news that happens for everybody else. Um, and you know, when we log on to Facebook, people are getting married and running Ironmans and going on these amazing vacations, and, and usually on the same day. And it's 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 a tough background to compare your life against. Um, um, and there's also there's always been social comparisons, but I think now there is a channel where our perception of what a normal life looks like gets distorted uh, because of, as you say, what is presented on social media is only yeah. uh, the very best shots of the 10% who were actually doing something interesting that night. Yeah, it's a great point. It's something I think about a lot, particularly, you know, as a father of two young kids, um, I do worry sometimes. I mean, what is that going to do to their mental health as they, you know, as they get older and presumably start to engage in technology? I'm, at the moment, I guess I can sort of control how much they engage, control stroke limit. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good uh, luck with that. Yeah, yeah it's, exactly. And, and I'm, I'm well aware at some point that's going to change. It's already starting to change, actually. Um, but I guess, Mike, one, one thing I'm interested in is, you know, how would you define happiness? <laughs> no, so it's actually a question we, we work a lot with, obviously. And um, we acknowledge that it's an umbrella term. Um, so you have one idea of what happiness is, and I might have another one. So what we need to do with these umbrella terms is we need to look at the different elements they consist of. Also, if we talked about, for example, the British economy, we could break that down into, you know, uh, the price of the pound, but unemployment, growth, GDP levels, and so on. And that gives us a language to talk about how is the economy doing. So that's also what we need to do with happiness or quality of life or well-being. We need to break it down and look at different uh, dimensions of it. And we usually follow the guidelines that have been produced by OECD on, on measuring subjective well-being. And they recommend that scientists look at three dimensions. So the first one is sort of an overall life satisfaction. So in surveys, we would ask people to take a step back and evaluate their lives. So you can get them to imagine the worst possible life they could live and the best possible life they could live on a scale from zero to 10, and then ask them, where do you feel you stand right now? Um, So that is the metric that is usually fed into the World Happiness Report. I think the average for the UK is around 6.5. In Denmark, it's 7.5. So so where does the UK rank then on, on that sort of usually global within, scale? Yeah, so usually in the top 20. Um, 
Um, so, yeah. But that's one dimension of, of happiness. So it's sort of an overall satisfaction with our lives as a whole. That's different to the second dimension, which is what kind of emotions do we experience on a daily basis? So if you take yesterday, did you feel worried, happy, sad, lonely, angry, frustrated, stressed? And of course, that is much more volatile. Uh, we can see there's a weekend effect when it comes to what kind of emotions we experience. Uh, and it's, of course, also linked with life satisfaction, because if you have a lot of every days with a lot of positive emotions, you probably also are more satisfied with your life. Um, and there's actually some super interesting studies in the UK in that uh, domain, uh, a, a really cool study under uh, London School of Economics called Mappiness, where uh, people, I think almost 70,000 people now have downloaded an app and are asked one to three times a day how happy they are and where they are, who are they with, and what are they doing. And then they can see, you know, when people are in the countryside, they're happier. Uh, when people, uh, the, the happiest day throughout the year is uh, Christmas Day. The unhappiest day, 2016, was when Trump was elected. Uh, people are unhappiest when they're ill in bed. The second unhappiest activity is being at work. Um, wow. so, so, of course, you know, that, that's um, um, an interesting study that also shows that, you know, we... Uh, our sort of daily mood gets impacted by political events and so on. So that's the second dimension. And then the third dimension, which is, I think, actually the one we know least about, is uh, a dimension that builds on Aristotle's perception of happiness. So he was, I think, perhaps the first happiness researcher, wrote extensively about happiness. And to him, the good life was the meaningful life. So in, in that dimension, we explore whether people have a sense of, of purpose or meaning uh, in life. Yeah, that, that, that last point was something I was going to ask you about, actually, um, which is basically when people talk about happiness, there's a lot of people now saying that happiness is the wrong goal we should be looking for. We should be looking for a meaningful life or a purposeful life. Um, and I guess that really ties into that third metric you're talking about, which is that is a crucial part of happiness because some people I've spoken to get put off with the word happiness because right. they feel that there's this real um, push now that we have to be happy and smiley all the time, you know, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Right. And I think many people feel that that is, you know, it's an unattainable goal. Um, has that, have you come across that sort of viewpoint before in your, in your work? Yeah. And uh, I mean, a lot of people talk about the pursuit of happiness, but I think in, in many ways it's better to talk about the happiness of pursuit and seeing yeah. happiness as a byproduct of something else, a meaningful life, for instance, or uh, a greater purpose. Um, and I think you're right that a lot of us feel pressure to be happy all the time. Um, and I think us at the Happiness Research Institute actually have a responsibility to say, well, that's not what we necessarily should be striving for. Uh, and happiness researchers get angry and frustrated and, and lonely and, and, and sad too. Uh, and that's part of the human experience. Uh, so nobody can be happy all the time. What we're interested in is how do we create good conditions for good lives? How do we get people to flourish? Yeah. Um, including having purpose and meaning in their lives. Um, but it's great that you're, you're actually measuring that as one of the dimensions. So under, as you say, the, this umbrella term of happiness. Right you are measuring different facets of that to come up with this sort of complete picture, which, exactly. which is you know, hugely encouraging for me to hear. Right. Um, I, yeah, I think 
it, it's interesting that, you know, I talk a lot about health and I feel that for me, what I've seen in my practice, seeing patients for, you know, 18 years now or so, I kind of feel that for a lot of people, being healthy is a necessary component, necessary or um, a preferential component or ingredient to be happy. You know, I, the reason I call this uh, podcast Feel Better, Live More is I genuinely believe that when people are feeling better in themselves and, you know, my bias is to help people make healthy lifestyle choices so they can feel as good as they can, you know, more energy, they feel good about themselves, high self-worth, self-esteem, you know, physically active, which is good for their mental health, all this kind of stuff. I feel that that enables them to get more out of life and do more of the things that they want to do. Is that something that you have seen in your research that, that health plays a key role in happiness? Yeah, I think, I mean, there is a mountain of evidence that supports what you're saying. And, and there is a strong link between health and happiness. And it's a link that goes both ways. So obviously, you know, we, we didn't need big data to tell us that if you become sick, then you are less happy. Sure. That goes from, you know, everywhere around the world. Um, the same things drives happiness and unhappiness. And I think that's also, to me, one of the great takeaways from having studied this and worked with this for, for uh, six years now is that you get to see how similar we are that we might be British and Danish, but we're first and foremost humans. I mean, you would get less happy if your children are sick. We would both become unhappy if we lost our jobs. Um, so, so we're not so different and we don't have such a different view of happiness. A lot of people around the world would unite around what a good life means. Um, so, so yes, be, you know, uh, our health does affect our happiness, but we can also see it the other way around, that our happiness affects our health. And there's uh, several studies on, on this. One of them, I think, is a, is a study in the UK, um, I think by Steptoe and Waddle, um, where they surveyed 8,000 people in the UK, above 52 years, uh, I think between 52 and 79, and, and surveyed their well-being on the affective dimensions, what kind of emotions did people experience, and then followed them over six or uh, five years and could see that the happier group ha had a uh, far lower mortality rate than the unhappier ones. So happiness keeps people healthy, even when they controlled for health status in the beginning of the study. Wow. Yeah, that's incredible. And guys, don't forget um, all the things that me and Mike are talking about today. Um, I'm going to link to all of them as well as a lot of Mike's research and his books and his articles in the show notes page, which is going to be drchastity.com forward slash happy, H-A-P-P-Y. So that study, I'll pull it out and make sure it's on the show notes page for, for those of you who are interested to actually check it out yourselves. Mike, when I was doing my research on you and, and your work, um, I saw that you have been all around the world and you have spoken to people from different countries, from different cultures, from different socioeconomic groups. And I'm really interested, are there some commonalities between all these different cultures, all these different groups in terms of what makes us happy as human beings? Yes, <laughs> there is. And I think that to me, that's rewarding to, to see and to recognize in the data. Um, and 
if we're just looking at the World Happiness Report uh, to start with, um, that's a report that covers 155 countries um, ranging in the top when we look at average happiness levels from uh, Finland, Norway, Denmark, New Zealand, Switzerland, uh, the Netherlands, Canada, and so on, down to the least happy countries, you know, Central African Republic, Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq. Um, and obviously there are some explanations for why some people are, are really unhappy in, in war-torn countries. But if we look broadly across those 155 countries, we can see there are six factors that explain the majority of the uh, variance between those countries. So GDP levels per capita, yes, money does matter, uh, because being without money is a cause of unhappiness. We can see that health, so healthy life expectancy, is the second factor. Uh, third, we see freedom, uh, you know, being able to be the captain on your ship, choosing the destiny that you want, uh, matters equal inheritance rights for men and women, uh, classic freedom rights, freedom of assembly, and so on. Um, freedom from corruption. So do we have a good government? Do we have a government that ensures that the money that are paid in taxes are actually distributed out to people in terms of quality of life? Do we have schools? Do we have hospitals and so on? Uh, and then it becomes more interesting. Then it's actually a factor called generosity. So is there a spirit of generosity in society? Is there a spirit of kindness in society? And then as the last factor, social support. So do we have somebody in our lives we can rely on in times of need? Um, so just those six factors explain the majority of, of differences in happiness levels among uh, the world's countries. Yeah, so, so it's not an extensive list. We know there's other th factors also within countries that matter. We can see genetics matter. Uh, from, from twin studies, we see that identical twins have fairly similar happiness levels uh, compared to non-identical twins. And of course, also the behavior you have on, on a daily basis impact. But from a policy point of view, those are the six factors to focus on. Yeah, I mean, they're so interesting hearing those, those six factors and how they're, they're pretty common across various populations, various countries, various cultures. Um, I, I kind of wonder sometimes about happiness. And, and I think one of the things that you just said about, you know, people having a sense of control over their lives, that's something I see a lot in my practice as a, as a GP. You know, you see lots of patients who, who in many ways are existing on a treadmill. They're going from day to day um, they're not giving their lives much thought. They don't really feel as though they've got a sense of control. All they're trying to do is just get through the day. Um, and I see this in the context of stress as a huge problem. I think it really stresses people out um, when, they, when they feel they've got no control. And I, and I get that can be quite challenging for people depending on what job they're in. You know, they might have a boss who they can't stand and they might be doing things every day that they don't like. And, and, I, and, that's, and I'm okay with that. I get that. And so one of the strategies I've come up with to try and help um, in a very accessible way for my patients is, you know, about doing something that you love. And I, I see so many of them throughout the whole week, they never do anything that they absolutely love. And I kind of feel that's a really important thing to lower our stress levels and, in, and increase our happiness is, you know, how many times in a week do you do something that you love, that you're doing, not because someone else told you to do, but because you want to, whether that's going for a walk in nature, whether that's doing a bit of painting, whether it's listening to some music mindfully, you know, not scrolling your phone and your emails at the same time. Um, so, you know, this is, this is something that has played 
a big part in my thoughts over the last few months because I've tried to create a new framework um, in, in my in my upcoming book, The Stress Solution, on how we can get more meaning and purpose in our lives. And one of those components that I talk about is doing something that you love. It can be something so simple. It doesn't have to be a big thing that costs money or anything like that. And I wonder, is that something you see as being a key component of happiness? Very much so. I mean, it's, it's, an, you know, it's one of the key pillars when we look at happiness broadly. Uh, we can also see when we survey people in terms of job satisfaction, a sense of meaning also comes up uh, in, the, in the top of the list often. And from what you said just now, I'm reminded of, of one of the uh, people I mentioned in, in my latest book, the, uh, the Little Book of, of Lücke, who perhaps experienced what you're describing there. And he's a young guy, at least from, from my perspective. <laughs> he's in his 20s. So relative. Yeah. So relative. <laughs> yeah, I think he's in his late 20s now. And I, I call him Clark in the book because his, his, um, his identity is a secret. Uh, here in the UK, he's known as the free help guy. And he had that experience that, that, that you're describing there every day, going on the tube, going to Oxford Circuit Station, working in marketing and just sort of feeling part of the rat race, feeling uh, like it really didn't matter. There was no sense of purpose. And then uh, he told me that uh, he, for some reason, decided to quit and give himself six months to find meaning in life and to you know, make his worth and his contribution in more than, than pounds and pennies. Um, and, and, and funny enough, he, he said the first week he, he, he uh, binged watched Breaking Bad, uh, but then for, for some reason he decided to write online uh, in, a, in a forum, is there anybody I can help? Uh, I'll do it for free, the free help guy. Wow. And that became the first step in, in a really interesting journey where he has uh, he sat next to a guy on planes to help the guy get over his fear of flying. He has tried to find um, a, a bone marrow donor for a young girl who is suffering from cancer. He has tried to reunite a father with his son. And he's done all these amazing things. And, and he says that despite of that, he feels that the one that have benefited the most from the project is himself because his heart beats in a way that it never has before. And and now he wants to make the um, the project that was originally a six months project permanent. Um, and I think that is a testimony in terms of how important meaning and purpose is in terms of just joy and uh, satisfaction yeah. with life. Well, it's, it's incredible to hear. And it's, it's, it's funny, you know, you're, you, you research happiness. Okay, that's what you do. You're the CEO of this Happiness Institute, which is incredible. My job is to help my patients. You know, when they're not feeling good, they come in to see me. And hopefully, I can help them to feel better. Right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing to me how intertwined our actual roles are and how much overlap there is because a lot of the time people are coming in as you say happiness and health work you know it's a two-way street and it's it, it works both ways so often a lack of happiness in someone's life manifests in their health symptom that i see right and i've realized more and more that actually just when you, when you look at the big picture it's not just about suppressing symptoms with pharmaceutical drugs and often 
so much of what we see today in the 21st century is in some way driven by our collective modern lifestyles. Right. And, and I don't think our jobs are quite as different as they might as they might seem. And you, you just told the story from your from your latest book. As part of this new framework I've created to help people find more meaning and purpose, I mentioned uh, doing something you love. Another one of it, another part of that framework is engagement. You know, doing something that that engages with others, doing something for other people, and how that actually is not only for other people; it's actually very good for our own sense of well-being as well. And it's it just amazes me that I'm a GP, you're a happiness researcher, yet our worlds are in some ways mm. starting to overlap. It is um, very much. You know, you, on, the, on the topic of your books, because I think it is worth mentioning, you've, you've had some fantastic uh, books out that are you know clearly doing very, very well. Your first book, and I'm not going to get the pronunciation right, so I'll <laughs> let you, you, it's a little book of... Hugo. Hugo. <laughs> How's that? Little book of Hugo. Right. Well done. Yeah, which I think, you know, A, it flew off the shelves when it came out. But my recollection of that is that, you know, it was about, I'm not saying the whole book was about this, but what I took from it was how there's real joy to be had in the simple things in life. And, you know, for me, that's that's one of the, the messages I took from it that I, I still hold uh, today. You know, why do you think that book was such a huge success. Have you tapped on something out there that, that, that people are missing at the moment? I think there are several reasons. I think, I think right now there is a global search for new ways of doing things. I think there is a global sentiment that a lot of us have become richer without becoming happier. Um, and perhaps a recognition that we've been looking for happiness in the wrong places. I think that's part of it. I think another part was that with Hugo, we essentially provided a word or a language to something that people were already doing. Uh, so I've had a lot of letters from, from readers around the world saying, I've been having Hugo all my life. I just didn't know there was a word for it. Um, and, I, and I think that was uh, an, another dimension that, that we helped people appreciate something they were already uh, doing in the first place. And we gave people the opportunity to, you know, savor the simple pleasures in life without that side of guilt that usually comes with it. Um, and overall, I think there is also these years a, a global interest in the Nordic countries in Scandinavia, because I think there's a growing recognition that those countries are doing something right in terms of creating good conditions for quality of life. So I think there was, in that sense, the the, the perfect uh, Hugo storm with a tornado of hot chocolate and, and candles around. Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> there, are, there are so many different things I want to talk to you about um, based upon what you just said. One of them is, you know, the Scandinavian countries are, are doing something right. And I think that's something we've we've seen on a number of levels. One thing that I, I have taken from from you know, when I'm reading about Scandinavia, or even when I've been there, there seems to be things that are set up culturally there for the greater good. It seems to be, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, it seems to be a less me-focused society. It seems to be, you know, societally, certain things are put in place, whether it's high taxes, uh, potentially, um, but, but they're there to enable, you know, well-being across a population. Uh, Am I right at that? Is it a less is it less of a me focused society than let's say 
here in the UK? I think there is it less of a me-focused society. I think there is a lesser level of the perception that happiness is a zero-sum game. Um, that my happiness also depends on how you and your family is doing. Um, I think there is a framework in place um, that ensures there's simply less to compete for, meaning there is less incentive to be cutthroat and have sharp elbows, because whether you are rich or poor, you will still be able to have a decent life and you yeah. will stable, still be able to enjoy life. So one of the things I enjoy in the summertime in, in Copenhagen, which is in all fairness about four hours and then it's back to winter again, but <laughs> but it's four amazing Even hours. Even the summer, yeah. did, you, did you get a good summer like we, we had did? an amazing summer. Yeah. It was six hours now. So. <laughs> but that's I mean, that's a 50% increase. That's, that's good. <laughs> but I mean, one of my, my favorite things to do in the summer after work, go down in the central harbor of Copenhagen and have a swim. And there's been a large investment uh, from uh, the, the government and, and the city to clean up the water. So the the uh, water level, cleanly, uh, the 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 quality of the water in the harbor is clean enough so you can swim in it, and that is something a lot of people in Copenhagen do. That is something you can enjoy whether you are rich or poor, and I think having stuff like that in place, you know, sort of removes the price tag there is on happiness. That some of the things you enjoy you can do whether you're rich or poor. I think that's important. I think having an infrastructure in place that allows everybody to move around the city to be mobile in terms of pedestrians and in terms of cyclists. So you do not need to own a car. Um, I don't own a car because I don't need a car. So my mobility cannot be taken away from me. I have a bicycle. I can go anywhere, everywhere I need to go. And in addition, it also keeps me healthier than if I was driving. And I think having a society where you don't need to pay to get into a decent level of quality of life, I think that's the key to ensuring a, a society where it's not me first all the time. Yeah, I, I want to is some of that benefit also. Let's say you, you know, no matter your income level, you can go and swim in, in the in the downtown harbor. Why right? is there something in the fact that you may not earn much money, but you could be swimming next to a guy who's the CEO of a company and you know could be very, very rich, but actually in that harbor, it doesn't matter. You can all swim in that. Is is there something about you know that societal e- yeah, cohesion? A, yeah, or an equalizer. That, yeah. you know, I could be riding my bike next to the you know, Minister of Foreign Affairs or one of the CEO of the big banks. We'll still get there in the same time. Um, and I mean, I have a normal bike. They might have a fancier bike. But, <laughs> but I, think, I think there is an equalizer to some of those things. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I wonder, actually... When I talk about health, you know, I'm always talking about empowering an individual to be healthier, to empower them with information and hopefully a bit of inspiration so that they can make small changes that are going to yield to very big, profound changes in their well-being. But I think the thing that often isn't spoken about is that, yes, individually, you know, of course, I want to encourage people to make healthier choices. But often, the choices we make are a result of the way society is set up and how easy it it is to make those choices. So with respect to health, although I think personal empowerment is important, I think the big shifts are going to come societally when things are 
you know, maybe at a legislative level, we make changes that make it easier for everybody to be healthy rather than you fighting against the norm. And I wonder, is there an analogy to happiness? So, you know, is happiness down to what we do individually or is it more down to what happens societally? It's both. And it's also genetics. But you're right. I mean, the choices you make on a daily basis, it impacts your health. It also impacts your happiness. But also the policies, the frameworks, the city you live in impact your health, the level of pollution, whether there is access to decent quality in, in health uh, services and so on. But it also impacts your happiness. So I think, was it Churchill that said, our, we shape our cities and then they shape us? I don't know, but it, I, let's I, I say mean, it was. Let's say it was. Yeah, <laughs> it was Churchill. <laughs> um, and if it wasn't, we can attribute it to you. You know, I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> but but listen, I mean, one of the reasons why Copenhagen has relatively low obesity levels from a European point of view is that people cycle. So the majority of citizens in Copenhagen. They cycle to work, they cycle to their university, the majority of members of parliament, they cycle to parliament, not because it's cheap, not because it's uh, good for the environment, not because it keeps us, us healthy, but because it's easy and it's convenient and it's the fastest way to go. That is something that has been created over decades. People or the government, the city has invested in an infrastructure that makes bicycle the logic fast choice to make. It's not because I think it's good for the environment that I ride my bike to work. It's because it's the easiest and the fastest. Um, so I think that's an example of how we shape our cities and in turn, uh, they shape us afterwards. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. And, and it's incredible that the Copenhagen have prioritized that. And they're, they're obviously yielding all the benefits now, including the number one spot in the happiness ranking. Is that true? Actually, we dropped oh, to third place. Come on, come on. <laughs> hey. So, so actually, our, our absolute happiness uh, level is the, the same as it has been for the past couple of years. But now Norway and Finland have higher levels than we do. So we dropped to third place. Is, is, there, is there some Scandinavian rivalry going of on course, there? sibling ri rivalry. So, so I... As, as I see it, uh, you know, we, we have two strategies in, in Denmark. We can try and become happier or we can just undermine the happiness in Finland and Norway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fantastic. But, 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 it, uh, but it obviously, you know, you'd, you'd have to say, looking at this objectively from afar, that Scandinavia is clearly doing something right, which is, you know, is, is it any wonder that there is so much interest now in what, what are you guys doing? You know, why are these communities so happy? Um, I think there's there's something that we can all learn from that for sure. You, you mentioned the first book about, about taking, um, you know, pleasure in the small things in life, whether it's, you know, putting candles on, um, you know, savoring a hot chocolate or, or savoring a coffee, you know, even things like that. You know, if you walk around London, we obviously, we both come into London for the day and, you know, you run around, the majority of people are not sitting down to have their coffee or their tea. They're, they're trying to get it in a takeout and get on the move and go, go, go. And I think there is something about just slowing down a little bit and and taking pleasure in the small things. The, the second book was, again, I don't want to uh, get the pronunciation wrong. So the first book was The Little Book of Hugger. And the second book was The Little Book of 
Lugge. Lugge, okay. And um, <laughs> perhaps you could explain what Lugge is, because I believe that it is being re-released as a paperback coming out in March with a with a slightly more English-friendly title. Is that fair to I say? I think so, yes. The Keys to Happiness. The Keys to Happiness, yeah. yeah. Uh, but what is Lugge? So Lugge is the Danish word for happiness. And with the second book, I wanted to, you know, make the point that, you know, Denmark doesn't have a monopoly on happiness and we can find happiness around the world. So it's more a global treasure hunt for happiness in terms of what are people around the world doing right that creates good conditions for happiness. So what can we learn from France in terms of mealtimes? What can we learn from Bhutan in terms of how to introduce mindfulness in schools and and so on? Um, But I think Looking at Denmark and looking at Scandinavia, what those countries do well is is their social democratic welfare state. Uh, I mean, we can say that the Nordic countries are the happiest in the world. You can also turn it around and say they are the least unhappy because I think they're quite good at reducing the causes of unhappiness. So access to healthcare, access to university education, relatively equal opportunities for men and women, and so on. I think they are good at lifting up the bottom. Well, that brings up the average, and that makes you come out in the top of the uh, World Happiness Reports. So I think there is there's several factors, um, but if we look at them across the five Nordic countries, I think it's the... Um, it's the policies that's put in place. We can also see it, for instance, when we look at the effect children have on happiness. So obviously children are wonderful in terms of that sense of purpose. But when we look at life satisfaction, the effect of becoming a parent differs from country to country. So if we compare parents and non-parents, uh, for instance, in the US, we can see that American parents are 12% less happy than people without kids. If you take Norway or Sweden, we see that parents are happier than people without kids, around 2 or 3 or 4%. It's not that the Swedish kids are nicer than the American kids. It's just that it's easier to be a family in Sweden than in the U.S. There's paternity or maternity leave. There is a shorter work week. There is 60 days off per week. Oh, sorry, not 60 days off per week. I love it. I'm, I'm moving. <laughs> 60 days off per year for your kids being sick. Um, so so it's the policies that, that makes uh, parents in Sweden happier than American uh, parents. We, yeah, which goes back to that whole point about the societal priorities can have a huge impact on individual happiness because that, that's incredible to think that a parent in Scandinavia by and large is happier than a parent in America and you know I wonder what that is in the UK because I see a lot of stressed parents around yes um so, yeah yeah yeah, please, and, and you know. it's, yeah and it's it's also something something we we often hear when people move from New York or London to Copenhagen, uh, that they see an increase in quality of life, mainly due to a better uh, balance between work and life. That you are able to have dinner on a daily basis with your kids and and your spouse uh, and not see them as something you need to reacquaint yourself with uh, during the weekends. I mean, some of this seems to me that this was the norm across huge parts of the world until very recently. I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna make a guess here that maybe 30 years ago in the UK, I would imagine that 
you know, the majority of people once a day would be at home having a home cooked meal with their family. And it's amazing how quickly society has changed. So we've just eroded at, at some of these kind of core institutions of family life. I, I just just no longer there. You know, people are feeling a lot of work pressure. They're getting back late, working shifts. Um, you know, it's not uncommon to have disjointed mealtimes and actually not sit and have a meal with your family every day. Right, exactly. And I think, how do we solve that? So I think one of the key questions for us, both doctors and happiness researchers and people in general and societies and governments is to solve the question, how do we convert wealth into well-being? Yeah. I don't think we've solved that. We are richer than ever before from a global point of view, um, but we fail to convert that wealth into well-being. Um, so I, I think that the, the poster child for that challenge is is South Korea, which I, I, I visit uh, from time to time, which have had this tremendous growth in wealth over the past generations and gone from one of the poorest countries to one of the richest countries. Yet they are really struggling with converting that into quality of life. Um, I mean, the rat race is bad here in London. I think it's even worse in 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 Seoul. Um, there's tremendous pressure on people. There's a non-existing balance between work and life. Um, Young generation are competing to get into the best universities. We see the highest suicide rate in OECD. Um, and interestingly, the country we get most visits from at the Happiness Research Institute is South Korea, because they are realizing that the way we've designed society, our policies, our workplaces, our work-life balance is wrong. Um, but it's it's finding that right framework uh, that we're yeah. struggling with. It was easier when... And I'm not saying that those were better times, but it was easier when there were obvious ways to improve our lives with the money that was flowing in. Um, and and I think we are struggling now with within investing it in the right places. It seems to me that, again, you may know some of the research on this. I don't actually know any of the, the exact research on this, but you know, we know that stress is a big problem these days. You know, the World Health Organization are calling stress the health epidemic of the 21st century. You know, and stress impacts every single organ in our body. Um, you know, they, they say that up to about 80% of what a GP sees in any given day is in some way related to stress. So it would appear to me, at least, that it would make sense that as our stress levels rise across society, that our happiness must, you know, at the same time be going down. Has any research been done into that, how stress correlates to happiness? Yeah, we, we've done uh, several and, and other uh, researchers have, have done it. Um, so let, let me give you two examples. We are just uh, working now or sort of have just launched now a uh, an experiment together with a, a company in Copenhagen, a management consultancy called uh, Valcon, where we are turning that company into a happiness lab. So over the next year, we're going to run different uh, experiments, different interventions to see can we improve quality of life, can we improve happiness levels for their employees. Um, super interesting project, really bold. We don't know what is going to happen. That's what happens in a lab, I guess. Um, but we, we run uh, baseline surveys to see what predicts the employees' happiness levels. And stress comes up as the factor with the most potential. So if we can find ways to reduce stress among the employees, um, we hope to see 
happiness levels rise a year from now. So that's that's one case. Another case is a gigantic study uh, we've run for the past couple of years um, called So Happy, where we see uh, how a skin disease called psoriasis impacts happiness levels for patients. So we've collected more than 200,000 um we have data from more than 200,000 patients across the world. And we can see, obviously, as we said before, if you have a disease, you are less happy. There's a, a happiness gap between the average citizen in UK, China, Denmark, and people living with psoriasis in those countries. Stress levels are often the best predictor of their happiness levels together. And I think this brings us back to what you said earlier, the link between your world and my world, the, the physical health and, and the mental health. Um, we see that if patients feel their doctor fully understands the mental impact that psoriasis have on them, the lower the happiness gaps. So it's not just the skin disease, but it's something that impact loneliness, self-esteem, and, and, and quality of life and mental health. So I think that, that's a really interesting uh, case to, to follow. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess what you just said about their, their, their relationship with their doctor is something that I've always felt as a doctor that even if you can't help your patients, just listening attentively, giving feedback, you know, nodding, expressing an appreciation that, yeah, this must be very difficult and very challenging. You know, I, I, I've, it's never ceased to amaze me how, how much that impacts, positively impacts your patients. Yep. Even if you can't physically help them, just that understanding. And I guess, that, I think I, I want to sometimes do people you know, often I see people who are actually very lonely, very, very lonely. This is not just elderly people, actually. This is people, mm -hmm. you know, lots of young yep. people, particularly yep. young men aged between sort of 30 and 40, a huge problem with loneliness these days. And, you know, often I, I find that, you know, they're, I wouldn't say they're seeing me, their, their doctor as a friend, but having someone to listen to them right. non-judgmentally and being there for them is having a huge impact. Yeah. So, sorry, I just looked at the clock because I think we need three or four hours for this podcast because there's so many things I want to say. So just what you said in terms of, of young men being lonely. Now, actually, we see in Denmark for the first time the young population, there's a larger share of people being lonely than the senior population. So we see those tendencies in, in Denmark. And I also, because we, we talked a lot about what works well in Denmark or what works well in Scandinavia, I think we should also talk about what works well here in the UK. Um, and from a mental health point of view, um, and I think you know, because you're, you're one of the, the examples of, of, of that and, and, and a role model, I think, in, in that sense, talking about mental health. The UK is leading. You're not there yet. You're not perfect. But the UK is leading in terms of talking about mental health, in terms of reducing stigma around mental health. Um, and I think that's also wonderful to 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 highlight uh, that there is there is something that the UK is is actually doing really well, coming forward, especially helping men talking about difficult issues, depression, stress, anxiety, loneliness. Uh, I think there is way more that can be done, but I think you are you are leading uh, globally in that sense. Well, Mike, thank you for that. It's good to know that we're we're doing something right and and trying to, you know, I, I've definitely noticed that there's this real um this real drive now to get people talking about mental health it's something i take very seriously i on my on the various channels that i speak on social media or on television i'm trying more and more to talk about mental health i think it's really really important and actually 
you know, we, we artificially separate these things, physical health and mental health, but actually they're not actually that different. They, they, they both feed each other. It's just health for me, really. Right. Yep. Um, you are right. We need three or four hours to complete this conversation. There, <laughs> I feel we're barely scratching the surface, Mike. Um, there's so much I want to talk to you about, but I know we're limited on time today. I was going to get into your 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 book, which I think you finished writing, that your brand new book, which is going to come out September. So, you know, not till September 2019. I think that's on making memories. Yes. Um, I don't think we've got time to go into that today, but I'm going to make you promise on air that you're going to come back <laughs> on the podcast uh, around about the time of that launch to talk about that. Well, that is, is that something you're, you're willing to commit yes. to? Yes, definitely. Yeah. So we'll, we'll continue this conversation then. We'll, we'll make sure we've got a bit longer time. But just to wrap it up, um, I think one thing I'd love to ask you, I ask a lot of um, researchers this, is since you have started researching happiness, you know, what change have you put into practice into your own life based upon the research that you've done? I think several things, actually. And, and I feel very fortunate because, A, it's really interesting to to study happiness. I get to talk with people like you, but I also get to try and understand, you know, what drives happiness. and it's. Secondly, it's it's a field of work that you take home with you in a good yeah. sense. Because when you ask these questions in the data, in the literature, to people around the world, you also, of course, automatically start to ask those questions yourself. And, and a couple of things I've done is because, and no big surprise, because what we see in the data, the importance of relationships, I've tried to prioritize them more. Um, I try to limit uh the workload i have i become better at saying no to things uh to reduce my stress levels um, and also like we talked about before trying to create an infrastructure in my daily routines that makes me more active uh, because we see physical health also impacts happiness and staying active impacts happiness um, so one thing is the cycling uh, and of course we can't all cycle to work but we can all try i think to create these sort of micro exercises and build them into our daily routine um so so this year i've actually increased i think my step count by around 15 20 percent um i think a bit part of it is that now uh, at the office we have uh we have a a sort of barista in the at the ground floor and when i order coffee there instead of waiting by the barista to uh, to to have him or her finish the coffee i now walk up the i think it's four floors to the top of the building and back down and when i come back down my coffee is ready so it doesn't take me any more time but because i drink a lot of coffee over one week that actually accumulates to 100 uh, stories which i think it's wow. the height of the empire state building so i think little things like that uh, trying to create an environment where i make the right choices also in terms of physical and mental health yeah, well, that's incredible. And that's, that reminds me of some of the science of behavior change about creating some stickiness around your habits, you know, sticking them on to something else that you're doing. So you're going to buy your coffee every morning. That's, a, I'm guessing from, from your uh, demeanor, that's a non-negotiable right. part yeah. of your day. Yeah. So you're stuck on a helpful habit to that, which is probably one of the reasons why it's stuck. Um, the, the follow-up question was going to be, um, I always like to inspire the listener to make some changes in their own life. And, and I was going to ask you for your top tips, but I guess you've just answered that really in terms of what you do for yourself. So um, 
would, would the things that you put into your life, would they be your top tips for any listeners to actually get a little bit more happiness mm, in their own life? Not necessarily. I know, I know I should say yes, but, but I think it, you know, it very much depends on the situation. Um, oh, I think, I think um, prioritizing their relationships right, right, is, right. Yeah. is likely yeah. to yield yeah. benefits. Yeah. But, but I mean, in my latest book, I, I think I have 30, 40 or more different recommendations, different happiness tips, and it's not a to-do list, but it's more a collection of ideas for inspiration that people can implement. And maybe it's, you know, tip three, seven, and 15 that yeah. some people will like, maybe it's 31, 32 for others. So I think it very much depends on the, the situation. Like when you make a diagnosis uh, for some of your patients, I think that the, the the diagnosis and especially the treatment also depends on the situation of that. Absolutely. Patient. And people have got to be able to personalize yeah. it. So I think exactly. that's a really good answer. Actually, there's no one uh, prescription, happiness prescription that will fit everyone. But, but I do think that, you know, your, your idea of prioritizing real relationships, uh, being active um, every day and learning to say no, I think are some pretty good takeaways for, for everyone listening uh, to the podcast today. Mike, I, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this. I, I actually genuinely wish we had another two or three hours because I've got so many questions to ask you. But we will continue this yes. uh, within a few months for sure. Next time you're over in the UK, I'll try and get some time butts in with you. And I really appreciate you joining me today. Thanks for having me. Have a wonderful uh, day full of happiness. Likewise. That concludes today's episode of the Feel Better Live More podcast. I certainly enjoyed my conversation with Mike and I hope that you did too. If you think the information shared today would be of interest to some of your friends and family, please do consider sharing the podcast with them. The best ways to support the podcast are to leave a review on whichever platform you are listening to this on, such as Apple, Acast, and now also on Spotify. You could even take a screenshot on your phone right now and share on your social media channels. Don't forget that there is a show notes page on my website for every single episode of the podcast. My team and I put a lot of time and effort into creating this page, so please do check it out. For this week's episode, the page is drchatterjee.com forward slash happy, H-A-P-P-Y. You will find everything that Mike and I discussed on today's show, including links to blogs, articles and videos that you might find interesting. So if you do want to continue learning about happiness now that the podcast is over, please do check it out at drchastity.com forward slash happy. As always, please let Mike and I know what you thought of today's episode on social media. And if possible, use the hashtag feel better, live more. Don't forget my second book, The Stress Solution, The Four Steps to Reset Your Body, Relationships, Mind and Purpose is available to pre-order now. And as well as the paperback version, it's also going to be available as an audiobook, which I will be reading. For those of you new to the podcast, my very first book, The Four Pillar Plan, is available to buy all over the world. So do consider picking up a copy. Just be aware that if you live in the USA or Canada, it has come out with a different title, which is How to Make Disease Disappear. That's it for today. I hope you have a fabulous week. Make sure you have pressed subscribe and I'll be back next week with my latest conversation. Remember, you are the architects of your own health. Making lifestyle change is always worth it because when you feel better, you live more. I'll see you next time.